This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. 1966, somewhere in the Yucatan, a fallen disciple meditates as he awaits penance. For reasons known only to the goddess, he's been cast out of the process. He knew this moment would come. The goddess has a history of brutally casting aside her favorites. He's still as stone, deep in a trance, as bugs crawl over him. He stays like this for three days and two nights, until two women approach. The goddess wants him back. But when the women take him before the goddess, she says his vigil wasn't enough. He begs for mercy. The goddess smirks as fellow disciples taunt him. Desperate, the disciple promises to flog himself if only the goddess will take him back. She finally agrees. All his strength goes into every blow. The blood runs from his back, yet he doesn't feel the pain. He's in a state of rapture. After his reacceptance, he tells the others of the euphoria he felt in his flogging. They ask to borrow his rope, excitedly beating themselves until they felt the same. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the lives of Marianne McLean and Robert Moore de Grimston, two ex-Scientologists who founded the Process Church of the Final Judgment. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. 
Marianne and Robert de Grimston founded the Process Church of the Final Judgment in London during the 1960s. The de Grimstons met as members of the Church of Scientology. After they were excommunicated, the couple married and started a splinter group. Members of the Process Church were infamous for their hooded black cloaks and self-published magazines, which attracted both celebrity and controversy. Their most famous doctrine, to love Christ and Satan equally, branded the cult as devil-worshipping. This belief system notoriously linked the Process Church to the Manson family murders, the Son of Sam killings, and dog sacrifices. The Process Church finally dissolved in 1974, when the de Grimston split. But perhaps most surprisingly, after several reinventions, the Process Church still exists today as the Best Friends Animal Society, a no-kill shelter based in Kanab, Utah. This week, we'll focus on the lives of the de Grimstons, their marriage, and the influences that led to the creation of the Process Church of the Final Judgment. In part two, we'll focus on the cult's association with satanic rituals, abuse, child neglect, the de Grimston's divorce, and the end of the Process Church. In his autobiography, Robert Sylvester Moore, later known as Robert de Grimston, recalled a near run-in with his future wife, Marianne McLean. It happened around midnight on a London road back in 1960. Moore wanted to cross the street to get to a nearby park. He found a pedestrian crossing and confidently stepped off the curb, as the law gave pedestrians the right of way. He didn't remember how far he'd gotten across the street when he casually glanced up and saw a car speeding right towards him. Moore realized the driver had no intention of stopping. He had seconds to spare. The car was so close that Moore could see the woman behind the wheel. He called her, quote, Young, handsome, angry, with red hair. I jumped backwards. She drove past without turning her head, end quote. He didn't know it at the time, but the angry redhead was Marianne McLean. Though they wouldn't formally meet each other until a few years later, Moore said that this incident perfectly encapsulated her. He compared her to a thunderstorm, a heat wave, and a blizzard all in one. Like hostile weather, she was incredibly difficult to define. But we will do our best. Marianne McLean was born out of wedlock on November 20th, 1931, in Glasgow, Scotland. At the time, Glasgow was a poverty-stricken cesspit of crime and highly congested due to an influx of immigrants in search of work. It made for appalling conditions and little chance of escaping poverty. McLean grew up in the Gorbals, an area on the south bank of the River Clyde. Children played in the muddy alleyways and streets in the shadows of decaying slums. With an average of eight residents to one room and an average of 30 residents to a toilet, conditions were inhospitable. It was a childhood Marianne would be eager to leave behind. She also suffered from a turbulent home life. Her alcoholic father deserted the family shortly after her birth. Unable to cope, McLean's mother often abandoned her to the care of various relatives. This lack of familial stability would have a devastating impact on McLean as a developing child. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. 
According to Dr. Joseph R. Cohen, quote, exposure to physical and emotional neglect in childhood can lead to deficits which lay the foundation for psychological distress in early adulthood, end quote. For McLean, her perpetual fear of being abandoned would manifest itself as she became a figurehead in the process church. She manipulated her followers to constantly vie for her attention. She would force them to constantly prove they loved her. McLean herself has gone on record about her loveless childhood. Reportedly, the only person to show her any semblance of affection in those days was an older man from the neighborhood who treated her like a granddaughter. But even he eventually left her, after tragically freezing to death after falling asleep drunk behind a warehouse. A traumatic loss that likely taught McLean how cruel life could be. One of the things McLean likely saw growing up in the Gorbals was rampant sex work. Abject poverty had not only driven many in Glasgow to go live on the streets and descend into alcoholism, Many women in the city had resorted to the world's oldest profession to support themselves. Witnessing how the sex workers plied their trade likely influenced McLean's decision to eventually become a sex worker herself. According to independent social researcher Jane Pitcher, for some people with a limited range of options, sex work may be seen as the best of possible occupational choices. Yet sex work came with a very high risk in Glasgow. Robbery, brutality, and murder were all regular occurrences, so McLean likely set her sights on the relatively quieter streets of London, where she reportedly fell under the influence of pimps from Malta. McLean had no formal education outside of an alleged stint in a reformatory school, but luckily for her, she was incredibly street smart. She quickly became attuned to how to satisfy her clients and became a popular companion. McLean initially took to sex work as a means of survival, but she quickly realized that the intimacy she shared with her clients granted her access to society's upper crust. She formed deep relationships with more than one of her Johns. According to Pitcher, this is actually somewhat common in the sex industry. For instance, McLean used to love telling people that she was once briefly engaged to the professional boxer Sugar Ray Robinson, who she met through sex work. Apparently, their relationship was so passionate that McLean flew out to the United States to live with Robinson in 1959. And whether this is true or not, records show that McLean did, in fact, live in the U.S. for a year when she was in her early 20s, though Robinson's son has since denied that his father ever knew her. Either way, McLean was back in London by the end of 1960. After her return, McLean reportedly worked as a dance hall hostess at Murray's Cabaret Club on Beak Street in London's Soho district. The next year, 1961, would prove monumental to the 30-year-old McLean's otherwise largely undocumented life. It was the year she joined the Church of Scientology's London chapter. There are a lot of reasons as to why people join the Church of Scientology. According to the church's official website, quote, Scientology addresses the spirit, not the body or the mind, and believes that man is far more than a product of his environment or his genes, end quote. The fact that McLean became a Scientologist strongly hints at a desire to discover within herself something beyond a sex worker or hostess. But she wasn't the only one in search of a change. Across town, Robert Moore was also seeking a new lease on life, 
a calling that would elevate him to a higher purpose. The following year, he would find such a purpose in the Church of Scientology, bringing him just a little closer to his future wife. Moore's early years perfectly contrast McLean's. A British citizen born in Shanghai, China, on October 8, 1935, Moore returned to England with his mother before he was a year old. And unlike McLean, he came from a reasonable amount of privilege and wealth. His ancestry could possibly be traced back to Anne of York, Duchess of Exeter, and the elder sister of King Edward IV and King Richard III. This meant that Moore may have been part of the House of Plantagenet, the former royal house of England, which produced some of the kingdom's most famous monarchs, including Richard the Lionheart. But whether he was royal or not, Moore enjoyed the privilege of well-connected relatives. The second of four children, he was raised upper middle class. Many in his family had achieved professional success, and Moore's parents likely expected the same from him. He was educated at a strict Anglican private school, which he hated. He felt the school was too conservative and repressive and needlessly shamed its students for their sexuality. He was ready to leave from the moment he walked through the front door. But the prep school wasn't all bad. He excelled in school and was offered the chance to study at a top engineering university in the UK after graduation. But ever the free spirit, Moore refused the offer, instead deciding to enlist in the military. The impetus behind his decision isn't totally clear, but some of his writings suggest that he was searching for a higher calling that civilian life had yet to give him. Moore served in the British Army from 1954 to 1958. His service was largely uneventful, although he saw some action while stationed for six months in Malaysia, where his regiment waged war against a communist insurgent movement. In 1958, a 23-year-old Moore transferred back to England where he worked as a transportation unit officer until the end of his service. In 1959, Moore enrolled in the Regent Street Polytechnic in London, known today as the University of Westminster. While at university, Moore married and fathered two children. Ever the passionate student, he once again excelled in school. As an architecture student, he challenged convention and inspired fellow classmates to do the same. Yet in 1962, that passion vanished, along with Moore, who dropped out with no notice, seemingly leaving his wife and children. The departure was a complete shock. His classmates suspected Moore had found something more captivating than architecture. They were right. Two years previous, in 1960, one of Moore's brothers had joined the Church of Scientology, and his passion for the church had inspired Moore to attend a few meetings. Moore took to Scientology like a fish to water. Suddenly, he had found a purpose, and soon, a woman who would change the rest of his life. We'll learn more about Robert Moore's new life in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. In 1962, 27-year-old Robert Moore dropped out of architecture school, suddenly and without warning. He had found renewed purpose within the Church of Scientology, much to the surprise of Moore's former classmates. Shortly after joining, he met a woman who would soon capture his imagination, 31-year-old Mary Ann McLean, who was a year into her membership and had already risen to the rank of auditor. Her job was to monitor psychotherapy sessions with the use of an electropsychometer or e-meter. An auditor like McLean would administer a stress test to each individual using a series of questions. She then used the e-meter to gauge their reaction. But when Moore was first introduced to McLean, it wasn't exactly love at first sight. Moore wrote, quote, McLean's brash exterior and her general air of supreme confidence had offended me and probably threatened my masculinity, end quote. Yet his initial irritation with her subsided as they found that they both shared an interest in psychology. Specifically, Moore and McLean admired the work of Austrian psychologist Alfred Adler. Adler believed that every human being was in pursuit of a goal, and one's actions were driven by unconscious motivations. Moore grew to see the human mind as a labyrinth of complexities that went around in a circle, an endless cycle of misery or superiority. But despite his voracious reading on the subject, Moore struggled to grasp psychology beyond the abstract. McLean, however, was more analytical in her approach. As a former sex worker, her survival had once depended upon her ability to read clients to determine their needs. She was a master of scrutiny. Facial expressions, attire, turn of phrase, everything was a small window into someone's personality. This ability to read others likely aided her as an auditor, convincing people to return to Scientology time and time again. According to author James R. Lewis, The objective of the initial service is to create for the novice a win, which may spark interest in additional services. The Church of Scientology's staff held McLean in high esteem as an auditor. They reportedly offered her much higher positions within the church, but she repeatedly refused them. She evidently liked being an auditor, probably because it allowed her to have complete control. She enjoyed the control so much that eventually she began refusing to follow Scientology's script and conducted her own evaluations. She liked knowing more about people than they knew about themselves. But that didn't mean McLean refused more training. In 1963, 32-year-old McLean underwent rigorous training for six weeks until she was clear. It was a difficult process, but was made slightly easier by the presence of her new friend, Robert Moore, who was also in the class. The Church of Scientology referred to the state of clear as when an individual becomes free of compulsions, traumatic events, and involuntary feelings. When Moore and McLean were officially declared clear, it meant they could officially help others become clear. Towards the end of their training, McLean provided therapy to Moore. These intimate sessions were spent facing each other across a small table. Moore talked while McLean mainly listened. Moore wrote, quote, I'd found real contact, perhaps for the first time in my life, and I was in love, 
end quote. For her part, McLean welcomed Moore's infatuation, and the two became romantically involved. However, it didn't come without a price. McLean provided comfort and security, but in exchange, she demanded absolute control. This put her at odds with the Church of Scientology, and they started listening in at her sessions. When she discovered her sessions had been bugged, McLean grew enraged and left Scientology. An infatuated Moore willingly followed. But the couple didn't go empty-handed. They stole an e-meter from the auditing offices. Equipped with the e-meter and Adler's theories on self-actualization, the couple resolved to help others connect with their inner selves. Moore had an idea about who they could help first. He had some school friends he hadn't spoken to in a year. Perhaps it was time for a class reunion. In 1963, 23-year-old Timothy Wiley was a fellow architecture student at Regent Street Polytechnic and had been a close friend to Moore during his university stint. Their friendship was somewhat inevitable as they took the same bus route home in those days. So when Moore phoned Wiley out of the blue after a year of radio silence, Wiley was happy to hear from his friend. Moore told Wiley that he had founded a new psychotherapy method with Marianne McLean. They needed a guinea pig to test it on as they ironed out the kinks. Wiley was already paying his way through school as a practice patient for student psychologists. So he figured, why not try this out too? But from the first moment Wiley met McLean, he distrusted her. Having known Moore's first wife and children, Wiley saw McLean as a homewrecker. McLean, of course, knew how to win Wiley over. She sent Moore to fetch coffee and asked Wiley questions about himself. Wiley admits he enjoyed the attention from McLean, even as she became increasingly invasive. Wiley said, quote, I was flattered, of course. Who wouldn't be? We all like to think we are special in our own secret hearts, end quote. These sessions, however, were different from the ones McLean audited as a Scientologist. McLean felt the official auditing process converted people into puppets for Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard, she and Moore favored a more existential approach. They asked questions, and their stolen e-meter measured the electrical resistance on the skin of Wiley's hands. The results were displayed on a meter and interpreted as his unconscious emotional response. The line of questioning would eventually turn to how one might be unwittingly sabotaging their purpose in life. McLean would ask him philosophical things like what the consequences would be should one fail to find their purpose, Wiley said, quote, McLean was a master at tickling out answers, end quote. These sessions with McLean attracted the interest of Wiley and Moore's other friends from Regent Street Polytechnic, who noticed the positive change in Wiley's demeanor. Soon, Wiley's neighbors were having sessions with McLean and Moore. McLean supposedly taught them how to channel their past lives and tap into who they were in decades past. They excitedly shared their self-discoveries amongst each other. The group grew to about 12 members by the end of 1963, all of whom were told that their current issues were the results of actions taken in a past life. Over time, they became so close to one another that they felt they had shared encounters with each other in past lives. Wiley said, quote, All this gave us the feeling we were onto something big and inevitable, end quote. Yet while the group believed they were making headway together, McLean and Moore put up a wall between themselves and their patients. They gradually withdrew from the casual meetups held by other members and conducted private sessions with each other. 
This distance helped them enshroud themselves in mystery and seem more authoritative to their followers. According to American authors and spirituality experts Diana Alstead and Joel Kramer, quote, authority may be vested in some perceived capacity within an individual, end quote. In other words, Robert and Marianne were the only ones who knew how to read the e-meter and as such were lionized by their patients. Meanwhile, McLean continued to exercise control over every aspect of Moore's life. Moore and his first wife had long been separated, but he was still legally married, a fact that McLean wouldn't let him forget. McLean utilized every possible opportunity to shame him about his previous marriage. She reportedly claimed Moore had deceived her, yet Moore was adamant he loved McLean and had no intention of going back to his first wife. Eventually, McLean believed him and agreed to move in together, although, in truth, she was probably never all that concerned by Moore's first wife, only using the marriage as a tactic to keep Moore under her control and groveling. In 1964, the 29-year-old Moore and 33-year-old McLean rented an apartment together on Wigmore Street in London. It was likely no accident that their practice was near where several licensed doctors performed consultations. This helped the couple to purposefully misrepresent their psychotherapeutic practice as legitimate. McLean and Moore officially dubbed their practice Compulsions Analysis. To fit their new image, McLean groomed Moore into dressing the part. Moore wore expensive suits to offset McLean's loose-fitting dresses. To seem more refined, Moore also had his blonde hair cut to draw attention to his blue eyes. The strategy worked. Soon, membership grew to around 20 people. McLean and Moore held bi-weekly meetings that they called communication courses. Together, they taught a crowd of eager young people who hung on their every word. As the courses expanded, it was clear McLean and Moore had stolen more than just the e-meter from the Church of Scientology. The couple had stolen some of the exercises as well. They split up the group into pairs and had them look each other in the eye for five minutes without distraction. Another exercise involved one patient verbally abusing or harshly criticizing another, while the other bared the insults without betraying emotion. This exercise evolved into one patient sitting in the center of a group of about 30 to 40 patients. The selected patient would sit quietly as the others shouted the worst insults they could think of. The supposed goal was to break their inhibitions and, through this, rediscover themselves. By the mid-1960s, Compulsions Analysis was doing so well that it was able to move out of the Wigmore Street apartment and into a mansion on Balfour Place in the Mayfair District. The Balfour Place mansion was leased by a patient of McLean and Moore's who had recently come into money. As with the Wigmore Street apartment, McLean and Moore had intentions for the mansion. It was to serve as their base to bring together believers and spread their word. However, several other sources allege that the Belfort Place mansion was the first step in McLean and Moore's plan to live like royalty at the expense of their devoted patients. As their patients began to see them as status symbols, it was that much easier to entice new followers who would gladly give them money hand over fist. The political activism and freedom of the swinging 60s attracted a lot of young adults to free-thinking movements like compulsions analysis, but popularity came at a price. 
British-American journalist and television personality, Alistair Cook, had a stepdaughter named Holly, who became involved with compulsions analysis in the summer of 1965. Holly was depressed at the time and initially felt relaxed after her therapy sessions. However, these sessions were expensive and all-consuming. Holly and several other patients were compelled by McLean and Moore to make a full commitment to compulsions analysis. This not only meant paying large fees to McLean and Moore, it also meant cutting themselves off from friends and family to dedicate themselves full-time to the organization. While Holly was entrenched in compulsions analysis, her sister Susie visited her in London. Susie was 16 years old at the time and naturally curious about compulsions analysis. Holly introduced Susie to McLean and Moore, and soon Susie was part of the group. Her visit was supposed to be a brief stopover on her way to Paris, but she ended up spending all her travel money on compulsions analysis and began cleaning the mansion for McLean and Moore to make ends meet. Concerned, Holly and Susie's mother, Jane, attended a compulsions analysis session to see what her daughters had been up to. The sacramental incantations and group shaming confirmed her worst fears. When Jane told Alastair Cook about the session, Cook reached out to friends in high places to help his stepdaughters. One such friend was an American ambassador in London named David Bruce. Bruce told McLean and Moore that because Susie was a minor, her parents had the legal right to remove her from compulsions analysis, but her sister would not get out so quickly. By the end of 1965, Holly had had a total of 300 therapy sessions with McLean and Moore. It was only then that she realized what she had gotten herself into. McLean and Moore were moving away from psychology with an increasing focus on spirituality. The organization was focusing far less on discovery of the self and far more on the end of days. They began to refer to their organization as a religion, even hinting that McLean might herself be a goddess. The couple officially rebranded Compulsion's analysis as The Process in 1965. The new name was a possible allusion to McLean and Moore's tenure in the Church of Scientology, derived from the terminology Scientologists used to describe the transition from a normal to a clear state. They saw it as the beginning of a new religion, steeped in psychological manipulation and doomsday fear tactics. It would be labeled a cult from its very inception, and McLean and Moore had never been so proud we'll see the inception of the Process Church after this. Now, back to the story. In 1965, 30-year-old Robert Moore and 34-year-old Marianne McLean morphed compulsions analysis into something brand new. They called their group the Process. And it wasn't the only name change the couple made. At some point in the 1960s, McLean and Moore had gotten married. Yet McLean reportedly insisted that Moore change his surname to something more exotic and sophisticated. They settled upon De Grimston, which was a family name borrowed from Moore's distant ancestors. But not everyone loved the changes that were being made. After her sister had been extracted from the cult a few months earlier, Holly no longer wanted to be part of the process. But she was shamed for wanting to leave and felt immense guilt about her lack of commitment. McLean was a master manipulator and knew how to keep followers in the fold. It took several months before Holly could finally extricate herself from the de Grimstons and the process. 
She later told the Sunday Telegraph in 1966 that the de Grimstons had turned the atmosphere in the mansion into one of guilt and subservience that dipped into the occult with things like spirit channeling. She insinuated that the process was a cult. And she wasn't the only one. Magazines and newspapers in London scathingly nicknamed the process the Mindbenders of Mayfair. Such allegations didn't sit well with parents, several of whom weren't as well-connected as Alastair Cook. One such case involved a 17-year-old named Jonathan DePire. Jonathan became acquainted with the process through his older brother, Christopher, who was already well-established within the group. Their parents had been upset when Christopher had started spending all his time and money in this rumored cult. So when their younger son started attending meetings, enough was enough. The DePires took the process to court to make them stay away from Jonathan. Unfortunately, an envelope with the prosecution's entire legal strategy was mistakenly mailed to the Balfour Place mansion, giving the process an advantage. They won the case, and Jonathan was allowed to remain with the cult. Such victories, however, didn't protect the process from ridicule. Moore had arranged to give lectures at Oxford Union and the London School of Economics. His apocalyptic rants got Moore laughed out of both institutions. It was a demoralizing experience that left members jaded. They began to realize that their own country would never accept them. So in May of 1966, it was decided that the process needed to get away from Western civilization if it had any chance of truly flourishing. Before the move overseas, the de Grimstons tried to recruit new members to help pay for the relocation costs, but they hit a snag. Because the process had been labeled a cult, nobody knew wanted to join. They were stuck with the 30-some followers already among their ranks and a smaller pool of savings than they would have preferred. McLean finally decided that the Bahamas would be the perfect place to settle, since she imagined it as a tropical, exotic place where the locals would be more open to alternative brands of spirituality. Apparently, nobody told her that the Bahamas have been a staunchly Christian nation since the late 1600s. To better fund their pilgrimage, process members sold off their possessions. And on June 23, 1966, bid goodbye to their distraught families. They relocated to Nassau, the capital city of the Bahamas. Initially, the de Grimstons planned to purchase their own island by pooling money from some of their wealthier followers' trust funds and inheritances. But for whatever reason, that plan fell apart once they were on the ground. The group was stuck in Nassau. Still, to be stuck in the Bahamas wasn't too bad. They quickly found a three-story wooden mansion that overlooked a swimming pool and settled into what they hoped would be temporary accommodations. It wasn't as big as the Balfour Place mansion, but the exotic tropical atmosphere was a far cry from dreary London. The members found jobs in Nassau and often spent their lunch hours in the pool. Every evening, the de Grimstons joined members poolside to teach and meditate. In their meditation sessions, several process members established what they believed was a connection with non-corporeal intellects, who they called beings. Process members would test these beings with questions and would arrive at a collective answer, which they attributed to having been provided by the beings. But after a couple of months, the process members felt that even though they would never be able to afford a private Bahamian island, they had at least earned enough to leave the Bahamas and find their permanent home. 
They asked the beings where to go next, and every process member simultaneously received a joint answer. Mexico. The beings led the group to Merida, the Yucatan region's capital city. They arrived on a rickety bus towards the end of the summer, 1966. Between the move to the Bahamas and the move to Mexico, membership of the process had dropped down to 25. Many former followers were either tired or ran out of money. But the rest foraged onwards and rented a small fisherman's cottage in the village of Cisal. But having spent all their money on the move, they had little to spare for food. They tried to fish, but were inarguably horrible at it. They only got their first real meal when a large fish washed up in front of their cottage. The process hailed the incident as a miracle. The de Grimstons, meanwhile, took to exploring the surrounding area. During one of many amateur expeditions, they stumbled upon an abandoned 19th century salt factory left in the ruins of Stull, a small Yucatan village. The process decided that the large factory was much more their style and quickly settled on the property, but that only led to more challenges. With no fresh water on the premises, process members made repeated journeys to the village of Chuberna Puerto to fill a five-gallon water tank. They had to carry the tank on a pole for over two long, mosquito-laden miles in the summer heat. Surviving off coconuts and whatever fish they were lucky enough to catch, members soon became emaciated. The de Grimstons continued their evening meditation sessions. Over time, the process's theology began to take shape. The beings were redefined as the four gods of the universe. The four gods were equals in the eyes of the process. Each represented the dual nature of mankind. Jehovah represented man's strength and leadership, yet also totalitarianism. Lucifer was the bringer of light, yet was also known for aloofness. Satan was the fire of inspiration and man's decadence. Jesus Christ represented both unification and victimhood. It was also around this time that McLean began manipulating her followers to compete for her affections and further elevate her to a goddess-like status. She developed a habit of elevating someone as her favorite, then discarding them just as quickly. Not even more was safe from her whims. He wrote, quote, McLean knows she plays games around people. The whip, followed by the carrot, followed by the whip. McLean was a master of it, end quote. Yet this casual flip-flop between cruelty and kindness didn't bother Moore or the other process members. Their Spartan existence in Stoll had taught them to think in terms of extremes. They interpreted everything as a spiritual reenactment of trials previously endured in past lives, subconsciously imprinted in their minds. Process members spent evenings in McLean's hut. She held court as she made cutting observations about everyone in her presence and gave them bizarre advice. For instance, Wiley adopted a pet boa constrictor after McLean told him that in a past life, he was the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Still, despite the eccentricities, the process finally had a home. But that would soon change thanks to Hurricane Inez. Inez touched down in nearby Tampico, Mexico on October 10, 1966, with winds exceeding 140 miles per hour. Wiley recalls standing atop a cliff and watching in horror as the waters receded. He told the others the water would return to wipe them out. 
He wasn't the only one who feared this. The British embassy personally visited the process to advise them to evacuate. However, apart from two or three process members who took the advice of the British embassy and left, the others opted to trust in the de Grimston's belief that the four gods would shield them from the worst of the hurricane. They ended up taking cover in a hole that had been dug out for a building foundation. That year, Hurricane Inez claimed 293 lives and cost $40 million in property damage across the Caribbean. The process hadn't suffered a single casualty, but they didn't get away completely unscathed. Hurricane Inez had destroyed everything that process members had built. They took this as a sign that their island adventures were over. It was time to return to civilization. In November of 1966, process members phoned their parents and made the necessary arrangements to return to England. When they arrived, the process immediately began recruiting new members, with a little more success than before their trip. They set up a hierarchy to honor those who had been with the group since before Mexico. Newcomers were labeled OPs, short for Outside Processian. They were at the bottom of the hierarchy, known as the Messengers. Above the messengers were the prophets, then the priests. And above the priests were the masters. The masters were men and women who had spent the longest amount of time in the process and ranked second only to the de Grimstons themselves. Despite the outward appearance of success and growth, the group had never financially recovered from their tropical vacation. While the Balfour Place mansion gave the impression of wealth, Members were virtually broke after their misfortunes in Mexico, so they opened a cafe in the mansion's basement, dubbed Satan's Cavern. Process members bust tables in Satan's Cavern and charmed customers with incessant flattery. Eventually, they convinced patrons to have an empath session, like the e-meter sessions McLean cribbed from the Church of Scientology, using a similar machine they called the P-scope. Eventually, the P-scope was set aside as process members felt confident in their own telepathic abilities. Meanwhile, the process had taken on a more disciplined way of life. They awoke at the same time, ate breakfast together, and were assigned tasks for the day. If they weren't administering sessions, they peddled their magazine on the streets. The magazine was initially titled The Common Market, but was later renamed The Process. Around this time, Moore also produced several books and essays that process members printed on a Heidelberg printing press behind Satan's Cavern. These books, two of which were titled Humanity's the Devil and Jehovah on War, suggested that when Christ told his followers to love their enemy, he was really instructing them to love Satan. In 1967, the cafe and literature sales were doing well enough, and new members were donating enough that the de Grimstons were able to take their teachings on a world tour. In April, they toured the Middle East, reaching Israel by May. In June, they landed in Turkey. While abroad, the de Grimstons instructed their followers through letters and phone calls. They continued to search for a new place to call home, as Londoners still largely regarded them as a cult. It was then that the de Grimstons turned their attention towards the United States. They took note of an entire generation of young Americans in search of their place amid a changing political and social landscape and realized it might be a place ripe for the picking. Once again, they took a leap of faith, 
The process set up a chapter on Royal Street in the French Quarter in New Orleans, Louisiana. On June 21, 1967, the de Grimstons filed an Article of Incorporation and officially rechristened their group as a bona fide religion, the Process Church of the Final Judgment. The de Grimstons had big plans for their little church. Neither could have guessed that soon, everything they built would begin to unravel until they were left with nothing, not even one another. Next week, we'll delve into the conflicting personalities that initially drew the de Grimstons together and that ultimately became the undoing of the Process Church. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back with part two of the Process Church next Tuesday. You can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Simone Fornilier and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.